0: So let's dive into Genesis chapter number 38 tonight. I got my deacons, my board of deacons, and my deaconesses is here, so go ready. Uh, Genesis chapter 38, let's look here at verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. Verse number 4. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. Verse 5. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was at, and he was at Chesed uh, when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name... Alright, we're going to deal with uh, these six verses quickly. So, uh, number one, the thing I want to point out about the context of Genesis chapter number 38, as far as uh, historically, chronologically, where this fits in, a lot of people have had trouble with this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, uh, but uh, the time period that goes by is quite substantial. When you look here at Genesis chapter number 38, it actually tells you about the time when Judah meets... His wife, it says, a certain Dolomite whose name was Hira, right? And then, well, actually, that's not his wife. Verse 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went under her. That is uh, Judah's wife. If, you know, we assume that it is his wife. It doesn't mention that specifically, but it tells you that he went in under her. You know, I assume that they were married, that this was legitimate, right? Um, so we see the marriage taking place. And then right, of that, right after that, we see the fruit of a marriage. And what is it? It's, of course, children. They bring forth three children. Now, I want you to notice that these children are growing to full age, right? Uh, uh, the, the one child, it says in verse 6, right When we stopped, it says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. We're going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to back up again. So, I'm not going to give you specifics about these verses, just a small detail first. Look at verse 7. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Look at verse 8. And Judah said unto oh, Onan, Go into thy brother's seed and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. So is how old is Oman? Well, he's at least to the age where it's reasonable for him to get married. You know, at, at the very, very minimum, 15, 16 years old. To just be extreme, right? 15 years old, he's at least at that age. So at least, and then his brother's what? Probably a year and a half, two years older than him? At least 17 years went by in a period of time. So a lot of people have struggled with where to put this. Uh, as far as chronologically. The reason being is because... What we just read about was when Joseph is sold into into slavery in Egypt. And if you do the time, if you try to put this right at the beginning when this took place, it's going to give you issues. Uh, So I'm not going to dive into that. Uh, uh, I don't necessarily have all the scriptures (coughs) prepared right now. Uh, But you can look at how uh, if you try to put this right at that time period, it's, it's not going to work. And what you basically walk away with, and you need to understand this in the Bible all the time. The Bible... Is general oftentimes when it's speaking about when something took place. It'll tell you all throughout the book of Judges, which is a 450 year period of time, it'll say when the judges reigned, at the time when the judges reigned, when the judges reigned. It doesn't give you specifics, it kind of gives you this vague time period. And by study, you can conclude without a shadow of a doubt that the very last uh, uh, um, um, story that took place in the book of Judges. Was actually more towards the beginning of the history of the judges. It was when the, um, uh, the the sons, the first generation of the sons of Aaron, the Phineas, when they were actually the high priests. So this is very often in the Bible, is my point. Uh, we can see this in numerous other uh, occasions in the Bible where things do not just line up in this perfect cut chronological order. That's not the way that the Bible was written out. You may be uh, comfortable or, or let me say, familiar with reading books that are written that way, but the Bible's not like that all the time. It's not just this chronological order that you follow. Oftentimes, the Bible will tell you a story, and then it's going to tell you another story that maybe took place, you know, um, and overlapping with the previous story. What it'll do, it'll just back up, and that's what we see in 38 verse 1. It came to pass at that time. Now, is that specific? Does that mean right then? Now it's talking about the period of time while they were dwelling in, um, while they were dwelling in Canaan. It's talking about when he first got his wife. Now that could take a place. It started right when they got in Canaan. We don't know exactly how long, uh, specifically, they were in the land of Canaan before Joseph was sold and all that. Uh, so you could study that out for yourself if you try to. If you try to just uh, put this. Right after Joseph is sold into slavery, I'm telling you 100% I remember looking at it, it does not work. So I want you to know the historical context of what's taking place. This is just saying at that time. That's why God's general purposely. When God gives you numbers in the Bible, you know, he doesn't say 5,365,422, does he? No, he always rounds, right? Rounds up, down, whatever it does. You have to study it out depending on, you know, what he's talking about. Because a lot of times the information is given very generally. And that's the same thing with the chronological order of the times; It will be general. So this is roughly at that time. Uh, look there at verse number uh, uh, Look at verse number 5, what it says. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him over... I'm sorry, I'm chapter 39. Verse 5. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chesed when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn whose name was Tamar. And I want you to notice that there. Tamar married Judah's firstborn son. His name was Ur. Look at verse number seven. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. That's a strong statement. Both of those things. That When, when God looks at everyone, he doesn't just look at everyone and just see all righteous, perfect people. You know what he looks at? Sometimes he sees... Someone that's a righteous man, you know what sometimes he sees? He looks at people and he thinks, you're wicked. That's from the Lord's perspective. He'll look at people and he'll say, That's a wicked man. It tells you that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and you know what the result of that was? It says, And the Lord slew him. That should put fear in your heart. You want to live a wicked life? You know what God will do? God will slay you, God will kill you. Those that are saved, God chastises and punishes. We see that as being a punishment all throughout the Bible. On into the New Testament, we see in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter number 11, that that is clearly spoken of. And, and some, Even you know, people among them slept, it says. Many sleep. What does that mean? They died. Why? Because it was chastisement from the Lord. God will kill people uh, as a punishment uh, for their wickedness. Look at verse number 8. And Judah said unto Onan... Go in unto thy brother's uh, wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. Now, of course, we know that there was a similar law that was implemented uh, uh, to this, where uh, the next brother was supposed to take on. And if he did if he wasn't willing to do so, we see this happening in the book of Ruth, uh, where he was supposed to, you know, uh, lose his shoes, spit in his face, right? And, tell, and, and everybody's going to say, thou art him who has his shoe loose, right? That would be terrible when he called that, right? I'm sure it meant something more than, But I mean, obviously it represented, you know, that you just have no integrity, right? You just not, a, you know, uh, you don't care about your brother, you don't care about his family, you don't care about his kids. It's just a man without integrity is what it is. Because uh, when it comes down to it, it's for selfish reasons that you don't want to, uh, 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 you know, take on this responsibility and help out your brother's wife and your brother's children. That's what it comes down to. Uh, so we can see that that actually is biblical. What they're doing here would be correct. God wants them to do this. God wants this to take place. And Judah was the one that gave the advice. It says this, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. Verse 9. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest that he should give seed to his brother. Now, part of that law was exactly the same as what is being interpreted here. That the reason why the brother was to take the wife, when we read the law, the Levitical law that God gives, is that he is verbatim to raise up seed unto his brother. The purpose is that, that, that the child's name is going to be named after his brother, his original, the, the original uh, uh, spouse of that woman, right? Before his brother had passed away. So, what went on here was, Onan He, of course, went and and went in unto her, right? But he did not give her the seed, the seed of the man, right? And it says specifically that he spilled it on the ground. I lost my place. Uh, And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife. It says that he spilled it on the ground. That is, of of course, referring to the seed. And then it says, lest that he should give seed to his brother. So the reason is that he knows that this child is not going to be named after him, Right? Now, how is that? Of course, that's pure 100% selfishness. Now, the I'll tell you uh, two things that we can learn from this. Let's go ahead and read the next verse, because that's going to help us understand it. Verse number ten. In the thing which he did, plea, displeased the Lord. Wherefore, that means. So he did, or so, therefore, he slew him also. Saying he slew the, uh, the brother before that, that was Ur, because he was wicked. And then because of this, because he spilled it on the ground, it says that he, he slew him also. I believe there's two applications to this. Number one... I believe the Bible is very clear that we are to be fruitful and multiply. I do not believe in any at all type of protection, any at all type of of prevention of having children. I don't believe in it. You can't point at it in the Bible. The Bible all the time talks about having numerous children. Repeatedly, Bible talks about being a blessing when there's when there's children around your uh, your 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 table, like olive like olive plant. They're just everywhere. It talks about having them in your in your uh, quiver as arrows. You think you think a warrior has two uh, arrows in his quiver? No, he's got you know twelve or thirteen of them, right? You know, he's got many. And the Bible gives a command be fruitful and multiply. It talks about the blessing of having numerous children. And then we see a passage here where God slays a man for spilling it on the ground. Why? What's the reason? Well, of course, he's selfish. Of course, all of those reasons. But he's disobedient to another command, too. You are to be fruitful and multiply. You are to have. This is an example in the Bible where someone is trying to use, you know, uh, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? I keep saying prevention. Birth control, goodness sakes, this is an example of the Bible where someone is trying to use like a form of birth control. That's what this is, It's a form of, and there's many different types of birth control, right? But this is one of them. So you say, the Bible against birth control? Definitely, 100%. I can point you to an example. Not only that, we can look at it from other aspects. You know, I don't believe in this philosophy, you know, where people will say, well, you may not be able to afford all your children, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. That's foolishness. Then God wouldn't have told you to be fruitful and multiply. I don't believe, like, when we start leaning upon man's understanding, you know, complications with birth and things like that, I don't buy into it. I don't believe it. I don't buy into it at all, period. I understand you can say I'm being selfish as a man, you know, but I don't buy into it at all. You know why? Because the Bible says it. I'm not going to not say things because I'm a man, and you're a woman, and it might have been you. you know, I don't believe it at all. We should be fruitful and multiply. Just two chapters before this, do you know what happened? Rachel died. Do you know when? Giving birth. Mm-hmm. Giving birth. Hey, birth is a scary thing. Birth, I can understand it can be sometimes a scary thing. But it doesn't negate the fact that God commands us to be fruitful and to multiply. Right? Don't. That's why you trust in the Lord. You know, like I said, Rachel could have been being punished. Maybe that's why that happened. You, know, uh, you never know what's going on you know, with situations like that. I don't believe that we should lean upon our understanding. What happens is you'll start doing that in every area of your life. You'll start taking things out of God's hand and not following you know, God's advice or counsel in other areas. And just doing your own thing in other areas, too. Well, I think that our situation is different. In this, situa- in, in, in this uh, 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 situation, you know, it's different for us, right? That's what you'll start doing in all areas of life. I don't believe in it. I don't believe it's right. I believe that we need to be fruitful and multiply I do not believe in any form of birth control or prevention. Uh, but let me uh, let me say this, too. I think another thing is this. Uh, Judah is aware that there was a promise that was given of what? What was, what was he aware of? There was a promise that was given of a coming Messiah or of a seed that was to come. What, it, what, does, uh, what does it say here that Onan knew? It said it knew that it wouldn't be his own. Right? He knew that it wouldn't be his own. So another thing you can learn. Because here's the thing: Does God kill every person that spills it on the ground? No, of course not. Right? Why? You know? Why in this case? You know, maybe he did that specifically and killed him. This is a possibility. I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, surmising. It could be because he knew that the seed was not going to be his, and it could have been specifically referring to the fact of he knew that the Messiah was... And, and here's the thing, he could have raised up the Messiah and he just, he didn't want to do that if it wasn't under his name, right? That could have been the Messiah to come, per se. That's my point, hypothetically, of course. God, you know, uh, God would bring about it some way but that could have been what was going on in this particular case because why did he come down so hard on it don't you think other people were doing that at that time why did he come down so hard on it you know, obviously it's selfishness and stuff but still people do that for selfish reasons in other cases that could have been why because it was related to the promised seed and he's saying hey if it's not going to be mine then I don't want to do it at all you know, if my, my seed isn't going to receive the blessing and it's not going to be in my name then I don't want to do it at all so he could have been being selfish for that purpose uh, look at verse number 10 now. It says, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. We can see the punishment of the chastisement of the Lord here. And in, in two, uh, two different brothers, both of them died. Why? God slew them. God slew them. That should put fear in our hearts to serve the Lord. Look at verse 11. then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And you can look at this later, but Leviticus 22, 13 is where you'll see uh, something very similar spoken of, where if a woman, if she is not in her widowhood specifically, right, uh, uh, what she should do, I believe very strongly, is that she should go back in to her father's house. Just like Judah gives this example here, the Bible talks about the priests. Um, uh, it talks about how <clears throat> the food of the tithe is given for them and for their families, right? So their children, all of this, to sustain all of it. And it, it even t- explains to you that if a woman is married and her husband dies, that woman should go back and live with her father, We're talking about who is a priest, and she can now eat of that and take part of that as well. Under her father's house. It says as in her youth. That's the exact words that it used. So in the same way that that was sustained her before when she was a child she can go back under uh, and living under her father's house. Why does God recommend that? This is just point blank. Women and men are not the same and women need a protector. That's what it is. They need to be protected by men. Men are stronger than women. So a woman gets out there on her own. What's going to happen is she's going to get hurt. It's very possible she's going to be maybe manipulated. Uh, uh, women are more trusting than men. That's just a fact. And that's why the, the the corny, dirty salesmen You know, in the fifties and sixties, used to wait until the husband wasn't home when all the women stayed at, at at the house. They would wait until the the husband went to work, and then the salesman comes, and he's this you know stinking, uh, uh, you know, just con artist, and he comes there because he knows it's easier to try to uh, sell snake oil to, to a woman because they're more trusting is why. They're more believing. They're, you know, they're more kind. that We're just wired differently, right? And a woman can be easily manipulated if they do not have a protector. That's why. They need a man to protect them, whether it's your father. That's why when you, when you get married, you leave your father's house and you, you cleave onto your husband. If anything happens to your husband, you have to, you need a man to protect you. You need to go back to your father's house. That would be the ideal situation. If your husband's not there, your father's not there, there's not a man to protect you. Another man who is stronger than you is going to hurt you or take advantage of you. That's just the possibilities. That's the reason why that this is instituted. Men need to protect their wives. They need to protect their daughters. Look at verse number uh, 12. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted, and went up unto his sheep shears to Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Adullamite. So, uh, his wife died. And then, it doesn't explain this specifically, but what it's saying when it says, And Judah was comforted, it's explaining that a little bit of time went by. And now Judah was comforted. That's what that means. And Judah was comforted. So it's moving forward, and then it says, And went up unto his sheep shears. It's saying, once he you know, uh, took time and mourned for his wife, now he's comforted. And then he did this, once he felt better. He, he's, he's up moving around and everything. It says, And he went up unto his sheep shears to Timnath. He is his good friend Hira, the Adullamite, And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. So he's active. He's doing things, right? Verse 14. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw, it says because, that's before 4 means there, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him the wife. So he is, of course, the third son of Judah, and uh, Judah had not stepped up and given his son to her. To wife, because that was the process, wasn't it? That's what he should have done. And she's being faithful, it seems, you know? And she's waiting on Judah to do this. And now Judah's, you know, doing other things. He's worrying about other things. And, of course, now she's bitter. She's lonely. I'm sure she's at her father's house. She already experienced having a husband. I'm sure she desires a husband. And and now that Judah is just uh, not being faithful to his word, she's now, at this point, she's becoming bitter, and we see that she goes and she waits by the way. It says she puts a veil on her face. Notice it says she covered her with a veil. That's interesting because it says in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a an harlot. And it says this, because she had covered her face. So notice why he thought she was a harlot. Because she had covered her face. Let me give you a couple of points. Number one, what do Muslims do? Cover their face. And why do they do that, supposedly? Because they believe that they're being what? Discreet or modest, right? They believe they're being modest. You know what they look like according to the Bible, actually? Because that's not in the Bible. She didn't have on a veil before this. And then when she puts the veil on, do you know what people think she is? A whore. If we look at the Bible's example... You know what these women look like? Because they try to act like, hey, Muslims try to say, hey, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that's our God. Right? And they say we trace our religion all the way back to that. All the things we believe they come from the Bible. What's, the, what's going on with this veil thing, Mr. Muslim? What's going on with this veil thing? Where do you get that? You know? Where do you get that, Muhammad? Why are all these women wearing veils? Oh, it's modest. Judah would think, Judah would think your wife's a harlot. Judah would think your wife's a whore. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's ridiculous. Point number two. You know why harlots wore veils? Think about it. Why do they wear a veil? What's the purpose of a veil? Why is she wearing a veil? Two reasons. Yeah, exactly. She knows that he's going to think she's a harlot because that's what harlots do. But why do they wear a veil? To hide. You know why? Because it's shameful. Because they're ashamed they don't want people in the town to know who they are and know that they're a whore, or they're a prostitute, or they're a harlot. Think about that for a minute. At the time of Judah, whores and harlots were so ashamed that they wore a veil. They're fully clothed, and they wore a veil. Imagine a prostitute on this side from this time period, and then look at the average American woman today that's not even a prostitute. The horse! The horse thousands of years ago had more modesty than modern American women. Right. How stinking shameful. You know what it shows? They're not at all ashamed, neither do they blush. They're not ashamed of looking like a slut. Right. That's the truth. Right. It's the truth. That's what's going on here. You know why she's wearing a veil? Because she's ashamed of it. You know, you should be ashamed of your sin. We should be ashamed of our sin. Whatever it may be, you should be ashamed of your sin. And prostitution and whoredom and harlotry, it's all, you know, people glorify it today and act like, you know, it's good. Today they try to make it look like the woman that's dressed like a whore is like the most glorious thing in the world. She should put on a stinking veil, is what she should do. That's what she should do. Should be a whore in the first place, but you understand what I'm saying. Hypothetically, she—that should drive her to hide herself. She should be ashamed that that people would look at her and say, "You're a whore. You're a harlot." They have no shame of what they do. Modern America has no shame of their sin at all. Period. They're not—they live in the most filthy, disgusting manner. They walk down the street just with no shame at all, no clothes on at all, and they're not ashamed. You know, you know, in bikinis, not ashamed at all, period. Literally showing everything! Not ashamed at all. Not ashamed even a tiny bit. The whores had more decency than you do. The four, you know why? Because you have zero shame. You have zero shame. They, What they've done is they've seared their conscience. That's what it is. Keep reading here. Look at what it says next. <clears throat> Verse number 16. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, "Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee." For he knew not that she was his daughter in law. Of course, that's also because she has the veil. And she said, "What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me?" Verse seventeen. And he said, "I will send thee a kid from the flock." And she said, "Wilt thou give me a pledge till till thou send it?" That is, of course, some sort of um, like a uh, basically an object. For this covenant, that's basically what it is. It's a, it's basically some sort of object that's being used to seal the deal, right? That's what a it pledge. It's not like a pledge, like you know, like a pledge of allegiance. It's like a verbal pledge. It's referring to a, a, a some sort of token is, the, is, what the, the word that's used here in a moment, like a sign, something physical of value that you're willing to hand over to me, and I'm going to hold on to this, right? I work at uh, uh, different locations all the time, whether it be hospitals, all different types of locations, and sometimes they have a special set of keys that they have to give you right and they'll give me these keys and they'll give me a piece of paper and i'll sign my name and everything and i give them my license and when i bring back those keys i get my license back that's the, almost a the perfect example of a pledge right that's what that is it's it's basically i'm holding this which i know it is of value to you, until you give me what you have of mine that is of value so he gives the pledge something that is of value that she doesn't necessarily want right but it's of value to him until he gives to her later what she wants. That is, of course, in, this, in the case of you know, a, a whore or a harlot, it would be money. That's why they would be doing it. This is a little bit different. Uh, look at verse number 18. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She said, and we'll see here in just a moment, that this is actually significant. This, there's reason behind this. And she said, thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand." And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. Look at verse 19. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil, uh, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. just went back to everyday life, right? She just laid that aside, didn't tell anyone right now. Of course, it said that she conceived. She's going to be bearing a child. Verse 20. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not. So he's going to pay her a kid. That's a kid, you know, a kid of the goats, right? It's a, a child goat. Uh, he was going to give that goat to her as the payment. And so the Adulamite, the man, would receive from her the pledge that he had left. The signet, the bracelet, and the staff. He's going to give those three things back. and He's going to return that to him. Look at verse number 21. Then he asked the man of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. That's because that woman didn't just stay there and be a harlot. Of course, we know that she went and stood, Tamar went and stood by the wayside. She planted this and waited for this. Verse 22. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. He told Judah what he had heard. She wasn't there, and they can't find her, and there never was a harlot here. Verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 23. And Judah said, let her take it to her. Like, let her suffer it. She can keep that stuff. You know, she could just take it to her. Lest we be shamed. So Judah actually understands here, you know, if I, if anyone finds out about that, this could be shameful, right? Because he's not going to, he's saying he's not going to spend a bunch of time, you know, speak to a lot of people. He could be ashamed in this type of situation. That's the point. Lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid and thou hast not founders. So he's saying, I tried, but, you know, I wasn't able to find her. We tried, we attempted, you know, but we weren't able to find her. Verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. This is, of course, when she's able to show, when people are able to see, like, hey, she has, she's pregnant. When she's supposed to be living where? In her father's house, right? She's supposed to be living in her father's house. And, um, uh, waiting on the next son of Judah, which was Shelah, right? That was supposed to be she was the, the next person that she was supposed to be marrying. Uh, look at verse number. Uh, I will continue there. Verse number twenty-four. Take on thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also behold, she is with child by whoredom. Of course, because she wasn't married. Fornication, you have a child. You know what that is? By fordom. According to the Bible, that's what that is. There's a good definition for you. And Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burned. So what did he think the punishment should be in this type of situation? He thought that it it should have been the death penalty. That's what Judah believed. Now you can compare this. Now now just the punishment for fornication is not uh, the death penalty. And if you read the story where a woman is put to death for uh, what is called fornication, it's after they were married. And a, a man marries a woman, he goes in unto her, and then finds her not to be a virgin. That's because she was having, uh, uh, you know, uh, relations with men previous to that, and then she had lied about it. It's not the same exact situation. According to God's law, and my discernment, I don't believe that she should be put to death. It's just, what took place here is just fornication. Judah's wrong. you got to make sure you rightly divide. This is a, a perfect example of how that verse really applies. Rightly dividing the word of truth, Right? This is not the same situation that, that was going on. She didn't go through with it. She's marrying some other man and deceived him and said she's a virgin. And she's not, you know, that's not the same situation that's going on here. Because there's regular fornication is, is described. Uh, basically what happens is they have to marry each other. So in this type of, type of situation, they should go to her and say, who did this? Let's go find his father. You know, they, Those two need to get married and he needs to pay the money. You know, That's what would take place in the situation of... Normal fornication. Look at verse 25. When she was brought, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man who, whose these are, am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and bracelet and staff. Now, I mean, there is not... Um, I don't even want to say burn because it's such a bad situation here. But I'm sure he felt terrible. You know, that wouldn't be the right wording to try to use. I'm sure he felt terrible. Now, what's being pointed out is that he's a complete and absolute hypocrite. I'm not saying terrible like, oh, poor Judah. You know, I'm sure he felt like, I'm a wicked man. I'm sure he felt busted. And he actually, there is repentance here. I want you to look at what takes place. Verse number 26. And Judah... Acknowledge them. I want you to notice that wording. Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I. He's publicly admitting this. She hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila my son. And he knew her again no more. There's a couple of things that I want to point out about this. Number one, I want to point out that Judah not giving her to Sheila her son, was not um, you know, accidental. This was something that he had covenanted and promised that he would do, and he was not faithful to it. And when this took place, she didn't explain why she did it. He knew why. What What does that mean? That he was aware that he should have done this and didn't do it. That shows that he was purposely not. He was purposely not giving Shayla to her. You know, to be a husband, right? Uh, or her to Shayla to be a wife. Not only that, the other thing I want to point out is the the hypocrisy that takes place here. He was literally, he was literally about to have her put to death. He was literally about to have her put to death when he was just as guilty of the same sin as her. But do you know what he did? He acknowledged it. If If you're in a situation where you're in sin... If you're in a situation where maybe you're being a hypocrite, if you're in a situation where you have some kind of sin in your life, even if you're not being a hypocrite, you know what you need to do? It says, and Judah acknowledged them. What's he talking about? His bracelet, his signet, his, his staff. What does that represent? It represents what he did with that horse. That's what it represents. That's what it means when he says he acknowledged them. He recognized whose they were. And what did that mean? He knew, they, he knew who he gave it to. He gave it to the harlot. And he said, I'm with child. She said, I'm with child. Discern I pray thee. Who's these are? And who's were they? They were his. He was what? He was confronted with his sin. Somebody called him out on his sin. Somebody brought, basically, his sin right before him. It's like just like when Nathan the prophet came to David. What did he say? Thou art the man. Right to his face, didn't he? Exact same situation. She said, Hey, discern, I pray you, whose these are. Look at these and tell me who it is. When he's about, he's literally about to put him to death. What happened with the situation with David? About to put her to death. What happened with the situation with David? He's told a story, right? And he represents the guy who, who stole the sheep from the man who had just one little huge sheep. And he has all these sheep. He has all these wives, doesn't he? David, he had numerous wives, right? And what did he do? He took Uriah's one wife, Bathsheba. And Nathan comes to him and tells him this parable, right? And he says, hey, there's this, this, this old man in the town who never had any kids. And he's got this little youth sheep that's like a daughter to him. And he sleeps with him at night. Then there was a king in the city who had numerous sheep. He had a huge amount of flock, right? And that king had, I think it it says that he had some sort of, uh, he invited someone over and he's having a dinner. You know what he does? He calls for that man's one sheep. And he says, bring it to me. And he slays that one man's sheep, the the, the one sheep that the man had. Right? He kills it and then they they eat it for the dinner. And then Nathan says, what should be done to this man? You know, David must have been all about animal rights. Because David said he needs to be put to death. You know who David was talking about? Himself. That's who David was talking about. And you know what Nathan said? Thou art the man. Thou art the man. He was saying, these, this is this is these are perfect parallels. So you know what you have here is you have Judah saying, put her to death when he's guilty of the same thing. And then you have over here the same thing happened with Nathan and David. Saying, put him to death! But it's about him. He's, he's the one that deserves that punishment, didn't he? Right? So if Judah would have, if, if, if Tamar would have deserved to be put to death, what does Judah deserve? It's the same exact situation. But you know what? You know what David did? You know his exact words? Does anybody remember his exact words? He says, Thou art the man. you know what he says? I have sinned. I have sinned. He says, I have sinned. you know what Judah said? You know what it says about Judah? And then he says as well. He says this. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I. What's Judah doing? He's acknowledging his sin. That's what that staff, signet, and bracelet is. He's acknowledging the sin he has. He's realizing, I'm a hypocrite. And he's acknowledging his sin. And then he confesses it. And even says, she hath been more righteous than I. She hath been more righteous than then I, and he goes on because that I gave her not to shave on my son. So what's he saying? Because he committed that same sin with her, but she brought this upon him because he had a sin in the first place. So you see how she, he's got these two sins he does, and, she, and and both of them committed this that the, you know one of the sins that Judah had, but then Judah was actually doing something unrighteous to her in the first place. So notice that he. She had been more righteous than he. Had been. You know, so he points out and he acknowledges his hypocrisy. When we're confronted with our sin; we shouldn't, we should be stiff-necked and hard-hearted. You know what we need to do? We need to admit it. We need to acknowledge that. We need to confess it and admit, you know, I have sinned. I'm going to fix it. You know, and you know what happens is we we. we there's a reason why every verse is in the Bible, every statement in every verse, right? The remember the Holy Ghost is 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 of course who wrote the Bible and the author of the Bible is pity and choosing. That's the gift, because the Bible calls the Holy Ghost gift. You need to understand the Trinity there to to get that. But, you know, the Holy Ghost authors this, and what's written down is for our admonition, the Bible says. That's why this is written down. It's, It's profitable for doctrine, the Bible says elsewhere. Right? Notice what it says next. And he knew her again, no more. What's the purpose for that? It's clear what it's talking about here. He understood his hypocrisy. He understood his sin. He acknowledged it. And you know what they did next? He repented of it. It says nothing to his salvation, of course. You have to mention that every time you talk about repenting your sins. Right? You don't need to repent your sins to be saved. But you know what he did do? The Holy Ghost at least tells you that he repented of this sin. He, it says he knew her again no more. What's it saying? He didn't go back to this same sin again. That's why that's in there. That's why it tells you he didn't do the same thing ever did again. Now, here I'm going to spend a few minutes here at the, the last few verses. Uh, we're going to change topics a little bit. There's been a lot of, uh, and all throughout the book of Genesis, there is a lot of typology. And uh, as I have mentioned numerous times, it always points to the same place, Jesus Christ, every single time. Every time, whether it's Isaac on the mountain, right? Or whether it's, you know, Isaac being born, it doesn't matter, right? It, it's always pointing to that Every single time, there's so many examples. Whether it was Joseph of the, uh, just all the strong uh, parallels with Joseph in the last chapter. What? Well, let me ask you this question: What line, or what genealogy which tribe of Israel did Jesus come from? Judah, right? He came from Judah. I want you to keep that in mind while we read this. Remember, Tamar is pregnant with with uh, the seed of Judah, right? We look at verse number 27. It says, "And it came to pass in the time of her travail." that behold, twins were in, were in her womb. Now, what does that kind of point you back to when you think of twins being in someone's womb? What do you think of? What did you say? Exactly. Jacob and Esau. And what does Jacob represent? He represents that seed, doesn't he? And who is that seed ultimately foreshadowing? Representing Christ. Notice that little tidbit of information. That's interesting. There's, there was, it came to pass there was twins in a room. So, you know, plant that in your mind there about the seed. Look at Verse 28. And it came to pass when she traveled, so she's in labor, that the one put out his hand. And the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, this came out first. So uh, the twins are in her womb. She's about to deliver. You know, she's, she's at the point uh, um, where you know, the baby is crowning, you refer to it, right? And one hand comes out. And the midwife, you know, being a, a skilled laborer, she's got a scarlet thread. I want you to notice that. A scarlet thread. The hand comes out, and she takes the scarlet thread, and she ties it on the hand. Why? What's the reason? Identify. identify. That's exactly what I was doing. She wants to identify who came out first. Which was the first that came out of the womb, right? Who's the firstborn? Let me tell you that first. Who's the firstborn? Who's all throughout the Bible? The firstborn, Jesus Christ, right? All throughout the New Testament, talks about the firstborn, the firstborn, right? The firstborn, Jesus is referred to as that. I don't have these scriptures, right? You're gonna have to deal with it, okay? But he is referred to as the firstborn. <clears throat> I want to plant that in your mind. Not only that, look at verse number 29. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold, watch this, his brother came out, and she said, "How hast thou broken forth?" This breach be upon thee. Therefore, his name was called Pharez. So, who ended up being the firstborn here? Actually, Pharez. Did the other son? His name is Zerah. He wasn't right. But you can look at it kind of like there's two firstborns here, right? Notice the first came out, and then there was somebody who came out in his place afterwards. What does scarlet in the Bible represent? What does scarlet in the Bible represent? I'm asking a lot of questions It represents blood in Isaiah chapter number one. Uh, you know uh, the Lord says, "Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool." Yeah. Right? Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as, as no, th- Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as snow. Right? So uh, it, re- it represents blood sometimes. Right? Uh, it can represent the, the the sin, but it can also represent the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. One other thing I want to parallel is I want you to keep your hand here. I want you to go to Luke 1. Go to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. Like I said, the, um, the picture here is of Jesus Christ. The statement was made when Phares came out and said, How hast thou broken forth? What is she saying? What type of statement is it? Like she's amazed at how this child was born. Look at Luke chapter number 1. Look at verse number 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then it says this in verse 37. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being born. Talking about the virgin birth. It says this. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. We look at the birth of of, uh, uh, Isaac. Who was the seed what's what's interesting about it of course uh man my mind is obviously elsewhere you know but sarah was barren she was not able to have a child which symbolized what Mary. so it's, it's the impossibility of the birth what what kind of statement do we see here when pharaoh when the, the seed of judah comes out it says how hast thou broken forth so you can see this, this, this symbol, how she's amazed at how this child was able to come out first. And what happened there? Ferez was willing to replace for Ferez was the substitute, or came out in place of his brother Tamar. And what did Jesus do for us? Jesus is our substitute. And you know what we're covered with? We're covered with scarlet. We're covered with his blood. And who was uh, uh, Ferez? He was the seed of Of Judah. Do you know specifically which line Jesus came up? He came up the seed of Pherez, which was the firstborn. So notice how they caught the scarlet thread and they're like, hey, this is the firstborn. But then they look at the other brother and they're like, hey, he's the firstborn too. Because you know what you are? You're the Son of God too. Because you are imputed the life of Christ. So we're a firstborn as well. Right? You know, the Bible refers to us as the firstborn also. So notice how you can see that this strong symbolism here. And then it says at the end, verse 29, This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Phares. Right? What he what he was he, he was the substitute. Phares was the substitute. What he did was he filled the breach, he filled the gap, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. You know, he was the way, the truth, and the life. Saw for a man to stand in the gap and make up a hedge, <clears throat> make up a hedge, and found none. We needed the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. We needed him to do the impossible, right? We needed him to come and pay for the sin. So the symbolism can be this. Number one, sometimes, you know, it says, though your sin be as scarlet, right? Sometimes sin can be represented as scarlet. That could be us being born with the scarlet, right? And then Perez takes our place, or the Lord Jesus Christ is our substitute and takes our place. And guess what? He comes out with what? He has no scarlet. He has no sin. And then, the brother comes out, you could say that that scarlet is also another application to it, is what? It's the blood of Pharaohs. It's the blood of Jesus. Right? And we look at him, we're like, hey, he was the firstborn. His hand came out, right? You look at him, you're like, no, he's the firstborn. It's Pharaohs. We're both, hey, he, Jesus is really the firstborn, but we have his imputed life. You can, you're, you're also, in, you have the imputed life of Christ. When he looks at us, We have his imputed righteousness. God, that is, looks at us. We have his imputed righteousness. We have his life that is given unto us. Look at verse number 30. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand. And his name was called Zerah. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before. I think I might have mentioned it actually. But the line that Jesus Christ came of was actually of this relationship. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 1, it gives you the genealogy. And because Perez was the firstborn, that's the line that the Messiah came of. Came from Perez. So what type of relationship was he born of? What type of relationship was Perez born of? A fornication relationship with a man, just a man and his what? Ex and supposed to be soon daughter in law. That's filthy. That's very sinful, isn't it? Jesus Christ was born of that one. You know what that tells you? God was able to use that situation, right? And bring good out later. He was still able to use Perez. He was still able to use Perez to bring about the Messiah. He was still able to use Perez for good. So whatever situation you come from, whoever your parents are, whatever sins that they committed, Whatever life that you're in, maybe your parents aren't Christians. Maybe your parents, you know, uh, you were, you were. Uh, let's say this. Let's say maybe that you are the product of a fornicating relationship. God can still use you. Okay? God can still use you just like He used Pharis. God can use. God is able to. You know, God He's a forgiving God, so He can take those things that maybe, yeah, it may, maybe you, you you grew up and you weren't a Christian. You grew up and you you, you you didn't know God at all. Your parents you know weren't Christians. God can still use you. Just like God used Pharise. Sometimes we overlook these things, but this this is the ultimately you know many just generations back, this is the father and mother of Jesus. They the Messiah. The Lord himself was born of this relationship many generations later. That's profound. That's very, very interesting. It just shows you that God is able to use any situation for good. That's what it is. Hey, you know, that sin is not good. But what he can do is, hey, he can help you repair it, and he can still give you a second chance. That's what he can do. Uh, Just like Joseph talks about this exactly. Let's bow our heads and have a word for Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the night. We thank you, dear Lord God, for your word. Uh, We ask you that you would uh, be with us, dear Lord God to protect all the families here, dear Lord, to be with my family specifically right now in this time. We ask you that you would uh, bless the singing, uh, bless uh, all the children that are here, uh, and keep them safe, dear Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. In Jesus Christ, name, amen.